Well, if there's one thing we need, it's friendships. We keep harping on the idea around here of uh, connecting in smaller groups because we're convinced that you grow, you are formed in the healthiest way when you connect uh, in a smaller group, including small groups of one-on-one. You build these deep friendships. You know, um, medical science for some time has pretty much had it figured out when it comes to health. Go to your doctor. Every time I go to my doctor, he tells me the same things. He says, we can keep giving you these medications, but what you really need to do in order to be healthy is focus on two things. You know what they are, right? Diet and exercise. I'm thinking, why are we paying you so much money to tell me what I already know? Diet and exercise, diet and exercise. I mean, I walk into the dentist's office and I just say to the dentist, first word, first syllable, no. Because I know the question is, do you floss? No, I don't floss. It's too much football to watch for me to be flossing, you know. And the doctor, I go in and I say, okay, let me give me the speech before you start. Diet and exercise. And we all know that's true. And most of my friends are looking at me saying, Greco, diet and exercise. My son Josh, yesterday we had a talk about how much we enjoy each other. And he couldn't go very long without reminding me, Dad, diet and exercise. I'd like to hang out with you for uh, a little while. So medical science has that pretty much figured out. But it's now understood and has This has been coming along for some time, that medical science doesn't uh, have the exclusive rights or exclusive insights into health. The social sciences are arguing, and pretty well, that they've got something to say with regard to health as well. Equal contributions, they would say. And study after study is being done and coming to the same conclusions. One study in the mid-'80s right here at University of Berkeley, uh, came to the conclusion that there is a direct correlation between the social ties and support systems a person has, a direct correlation between that and mortality and disease rates. Oh, you say, but that was in the 80s. There were studies before that, but these aren't that recent. Well, the conclusion then, the more social ties a person has, the better the person's health and the lower the death rate. They can, people live longer. And they conversely said the more isolated a person is, the fewer connectional experiences, the fewer real friendships, interactions, the more isolated the person is, the poorer the health, the higher the death rate. And they pointed in that particular study to the country of Japan, where there's a correlation between health and longevity and diet and exercise too, but health and longevity and being very, very connectional, almost in a healthy way enmeshed in each other's life. Virtually every study done since that study has confirmed those earlier conclusions. Medical science has something to say, but so do the social sciences, including a more recent study done by the American Society of Aging. Listen to what that report says. One excerpt. Healthy relationships are a vital component of health and well-being. There is compelling evidence that strong relationships contribute to a long, healthy, and happy life. Now, these are assuming good and healthy relationships because the, the opposite is true as well. 
unhealthy, painful social interaction can have the opposite effect. But there's a correlation. Conversely, the health risks from being alone or isolated in one's life are comparable, listen to this, to the risks associated with cigarette smoking, blood pressure, high blood pressure. Having blood pressure is actually a good thing they've discovered. <laughs> cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, and obesity. We all know that those are not good for us, but they're saying equally not good for us is isolation, perpetual isolation. Perhaps Thomas Aquinas was onto something when he said, there's nothing on this earth more to be prized than friendship. So we're talking around here all the time about we're drilling at home, almost nagging you, get connected, be connected, stay connected, link up. Life together is the name of this series. And we want to talk a little bit over these four weeks about what that looks like and how it can help us. So today, I'm bringing you a message that I've entitled, Life's Fatal Flaw. And you might have already guessed that the fatal flaw is an unhealthy version of disconnectedness. I'm not speaking against the discipline of solitude. That's actually a spiritual discipline that has been used for centuries to deepen a person's life. Very rarely somebody is gifted to excel in that idea of solitude, very rarely. But generally speaking, the more connected you are in healthy relationships, the better life's going to be and the healthier you are. And so the idea of friendships and building friendships and connecting with people and going deep in life and walking together and, and having buddies, whether they're 70-year-long friendships or seven-month-long friendships, is very important. And I want to point out from some of the best friendships in Scripture, some of the qualities of a life-giving friend. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Here's one of the qualities of a life-giving friend. A life-giving friend sacrifices for you. A friendship that doesn't have a reciprocal willingness or practice of sacrifice, giving something up for the friend, is not really a very deep friendship. Remember Jesse Owens in the uh, Olympic Games with Hitler there watching trying to prove what Hitler was trying to prove. After he won one of his gold medals, the second of his fourth medal was in the long jump. And the first person to come over and congratulate him is the person who had actually helped him, gave him an idea before the long jump that made it easier for Jesse Owens to compete. He was competing in a few things and he was getting a little bit tired. The first person that came over to congratulate Jesse for his gold medal, was a German track star in full view of Adolf Hitler. So he's angry already because Jesse Owens, the opposite of the Aryan ideal, had won, had beaten a German, and now Hitler's watching the German track star who had been applauded and put up as an example of what could be, come over and humbly congratulate Jesse Owens, full of class to do that. And Jesse was later interviewed, and he said he never saw the man again. He was killed, in fact, in World War II. I wonder if his assignment was not particularly positive after that. 
But Owen certainly did speak of him. Listen to what he said about him. He said, quote, You could melt down all the metals and cups I have, and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24-karat friendship I felt for Luz Long. Sacrifice. There's friendship. In 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5, you have a reference to this famous friendship between Jonathan, the prince, and David, later the king. But he's not king yet. And listen to what's written and recorded there. Jonathan looks at David. Jonathan is a son of Saul. David's a shepherd boy. But David has a lot of courage and he fights and he stands up for what's right against what's wrong. And their hearts are knit together, the scripture says. And listen to this text. After David had finished talking with Saul, the king, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. There's a friendship. From that day, Saul kept David with him, did not let him return home to his family. But now listen to this. This is the most important part. Jonathan made an agreement, a contract, a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. I mean, he's going to share his wedding dress. And he says, Jonathan, it says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. This is the prince, remember, acting toward a commoner took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. In so many words, that's the same as Jonathan saying, I would rather be a friend of yours than to inherit my father's kingdom. Every time you grip this sword, think of me, your friend. Every time you walk down the street and people say, my goodness, isn't that Jonathan's tunic? You hold your head high. I would give everything to be your friend. That's all the honor I need in life. One of the marks of a healthy, life-giving friendship is you have a friend who will sacrifice for you, not so much a taker as they are a giver. Second mark. This friend not only sacrifices for you, but a life-giving friend is always there for you. How can you sacrifice for someone if you're not there for them, really? Oprah Winfrey said, lots of people want to ride with you in the limo, but what you want is someone who will take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. You want someone who will sit next to you on the bus when the limo breaks down. And that is so true because a true friend, a life-giving friend, is there for you. Job chapter 2 records a portion of this encounter Job had with his friends. And those friends of Job get a bit of negative press. But actually, they get more negative press than they deserve. Listen to the initial interaction, the initial contact Job's friends have with him. And think of this idea of a healthy friendship being one with somebody who's there for you. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, come on, give me some applause. 
<laughs> heard about all the troubles that he had, the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Sign of mourning, a sign of, oh, oh no. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. A healthy, life-giving friendship is proven by the fact that that friend is there with you. Not just talking about you, not just wishing you well. Sitting down on the ground, dust all over their heads with you for seven days and seven nights. And it gets even better in the last line. No one said a word to him for seven days and seven nights because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, Job's friends talk a lot later. But for the first week, they sat in silence and they were simply there. Sitting on the bus with them because the limo had broken down. A life-giving friendship. That friend sacrifices for you and we hope and pray you're building those kinds of friendships. That friend is there for you. When it's uncomfortable to be there for them. A friend is there, sitting, confused, uncomfortable, but there. Third, a life-giving friend sacrifices for you, is there for you, and is loyal to you. People ask me sometimes, what's the... Fastest, usually in interviews, what's the quickest way? And I'll use this interview question a lot too. What's the fastest way to break your heart? If I wanted to break your heart as efficiently and quickly as I could, what should I do? Because it gives you insight into the person and their values. And my answer is easy. Betray me. Don't be worthy of my trust. When I reveal myself to you and give myself to you, betray me. Walter Winchell said, because a life-giving friend is loyal to you. And Walter Winchell said this. You'll want to use this one again. A real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. They're loyal to you. When you stink, they still want to take off the wrapper and sit next to you. When everything's going great, they're there, they're loyal to you. When it's not real popular to be your friend, they're loyal to you. They're the one who's standing up and saying, I'm not going to deny that that thing you just said is a fact. I am going to encourage you to rethink how often you need to say it. And let's remember not to define our friend by his or her worst moment. They're the people saying those kinds of things. Yeah, but. Yes, and. A life-giving friend is a friend who understands loyalty. Not, not false loyalty, pretending that things that are true aren't true and things that aren't true are. This is a friend, though, who is re redefining or at least helping us figure out where to put the decimal point on that friendship. They stand by you no matter what. Listen to this, I think, one of the best examples of this kind of friendship between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the prophet, Elisha is the student prophet, and Elijah is going to be 
ending, having his life end, on earth end pretty soon. Going to be taken away. But Elisha refuses to allow Elijah to go on that final journey alone. Why? Because he's loyal to him. 2 Kings 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. In other words, Elijah is saying to his disciple, the Lord's going to swoop me up. This, you, go, you go ahead and stay here. I'm done now. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, I'm not leaving you. So they went together to Bethel. And the company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take up your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. I love this. So be quiet. I don't know if that was a be calm and quiet and contemplative. or I already know that, so shut up. Quit reminding me. I'll let you decide. And then Elisha said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho together. And the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Elisha, do you not know that the Lord's going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So cállate. <laughs> Be quiet. Then Elisha said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. And 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. And Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you, my loyal friend? The answer was, Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Well, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will be not. In other words, if you continue in this persistent, tenacious loyalty that I've seen already, that's going to be yours. And as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel! And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And the text goes on to say, used it likewise. And that mantle was passed on to Elisha, a true friend, a life-giving friend who was Loyal, a friend that walked in when everybody else walked out. Do you have friends like that in your life? Do you have friends that aren't like that in your life? Because they're not friends. Fourth, so this friend that gives life is loyal to you, but friendships that are healthy and life-giving 
aren't always fun. They're sometimes awkward and painful. Some of the best ones are like that. If you're married and your marriage is reasonably healthy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you don't have to be married to know this. Because a life-giving friend is lovingly candid with you. My first go-around with these notes just said, candid with you. Nah, that doesn't quite get it. <laughs> lovingly candid with you. Because remember that saying we keep drilling in and say it over and over and over, you could finish it when I start it by now, after 12 years of it. Everything that's said must be true. Can anybody finish it? But not everything that's true must be said. But a real friend finds it difficult to say things that wound you, but they love you enough that they'll say it because they would rather be the ones to offer the wound than somebody that doesn't even love you. Oscar Wilde said, true friends stab you in the front. True friends say, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. And it does. Look in John chapter 11. Here's an example of candor because friendship allowed it. When Jesus waits to come back to heal Lazarus, and Mary, the sister of Lazarus and dear friend of Jesus, goes and confronts him. She reached the place, John eleven thirty two, where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet and said something very candid. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I add that intonation to point of interpretation. I think it was a statement of frustration. I don't think it was a statement of faith. I think it was a, ah, you're driving me crazy. You waited? She may not have even known he waited, but it took a while for him to get here once she knew he got the message. Excuse me. And when Jesus saw her weeping, here's, here's what candor does in a healthy friendship. It doesn't do this. It doesn't result in this. It results in this. And you see that here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and her, ear, her words are still ringing in his ears, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Not even sure she spoke. And then, verse 35, and Jesus wept. All the result of a candid expression of frustration, disappointment, reality. Did you know that the greatest friend you have ever or ever will have is Jesus? And there's no place where no one with whom it is safer to be candid than with Jesus? I would blush uh, with fear, if every candid statement I've ever made when it was just him and me in the car was made public. 
we would wonder how in the world is art still alive to talk like that to God. And I don't mean to say that pridefully. I mean to say my Lord allows me the privilege of candor. Why? Because he has called himself my friend. He knows how we're made. He already reads the words that are unspoken but still out there coming from our hearts anyway. So why not just admit to him, here's how I'm feeling about you right now. Including when you're overwhelmed with love for him and words fail you. A a life-giving friendship is lovingly candid with you. And by the way, he is as candid with us, isn't he? You know, when you're walking around and you say something that's inappropriate to someone you really love, and that thought comes to your mind, dude, that's not okay with me. She deserves better than that. Why would you talk to her like that? Why would you break your own child's heart by saying something like that? Do you feel better? Because nobody else does. He's as candid with us. Why? Because he loves us. It's a life-giving friendship. Then finally this. A life-giving friendship. And to me, loyalty and this one are so tightly related, connected. A life-giving friendship is always anxious to forgive you. It's not reluctant to forgive. It's looking for an avenue of forgiveness, if it's a true friend, a life-giving friend. In the movie Indecent Proposal, do you remember that movie? That, that was a painful movie. Demi Moore says this, her, her character says this. This is where for profit and for prestige, a guy his, he lets his wife, um, he basically pimps his wife out. They're going to gain a lot. It'll just just be over pretty soon. Just deal with it. And she says this. That character says, people remember the painful things they do to each other. That, That wasn't just another thing to check off on the list. You were just willing to give me up to gain something. That obviously means more to you than me. People remember the painful things they do to each other. And then the character says this. If they stay together, it's not because they forget It's because they forgive. May I remind you, whatever it is that's happened, I don't mean to minimize it or imply that it's easy to deal with. It may be a lifetime nightmare for you that I could never even imagine, and my heart breaks for you if something that severe has got you tripped up. And it does. In some cases in a room this size, it definitely does. So not trying to make small of that. But we are most like Jesus when we will forgive. And and we are most free like Jesus when we find a way to forgive. And say to whatever it was that broke our hearts, whatever event, whatever person, whatever thought or memory or how many generations ago, whatever it might be, when we can say, I woke up today and realized you no longer have power over me. Because I've forgiven you. And as long as I forgive you, you don't get to keep hurting me. And a true friend is looking for a way to forgive you when you're less than you should be as a friend. Do you have friends like that in your life? 
Do you have freedom like that in your life? Isn't there deep appreciation for someone you have wounded or let down, disappointed, or even failed by your own standards who will come and say, it's okay, we're, it hurt, but we're friends. We're, we're not going to let this stop our friendship. We're walking through this together because on the other side of this, experiencing forgiveness, there's something fantastic waiting for us. And can't you just picture Jesus kind of standing off to the side, watching that interaction going like this? <laughs> I can. In fact, Jesus modeled it for us. When Peter denied him and Jesus heard and saw the denial, and Peter felt like, well, you fill in the blank. Not much of a friend. They see each other. And Jesus takes the initiative because Peter's not saying anything. There's no record of Peter saying anything to Jesus once he denies him. Until this happens. Peter's hanging out. He's off to the side. Like the guy who wanted to play but didn't get picked. Everybody's eating breakfast. Jesus fixes them breakfast. And then Jesus goes, oh, this is just like Jesus, goes over to the guy who broke his heart. And he says, it says, when they had finished eating, John 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, first words we know of that were spoken between them. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, whether it was these disciples or these fish that were on the grill? I don't know. And Peter, probably with his head still down and looking at his own feet, mumbled, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I know that the different translations give different insights. The words that are used here give different insights. I'm not going into that. That's not my point. And Jesus said, then do your ministry. Feed my lambs. Silence. Kicking of the dirt. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. I still have something for you to do. Silence. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Are you my friend? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, are you my friend, do you love me? He said, Lord, and he, I imagine him looking up from the ground now and looking Jesus in the eye and going, come on, man. You know everything. You know all things. Therefore, you know that deep in my heart, I really love you. I am at least your friend. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Message sound sent loud and clear. You did not when you failed me like that. Fail so hard and fall so far that I quit loving you. I forgive you. Now let's get some stuff done together as true friends. That's the message there. People remember the painful things they do to each other. And if they stay together, it's not because they forget. It's because they forgive. A life-giving friendship is anxious to forgive you. 
Now back to these studies. According to psychiatrists Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, social alienation, this is from the University of Minnesota, a study that they published. Social alienation is an inevitable result of contemporary society's preoccupation. This is a, this is a modern current study now, not 85. Society's preoccupation with materialism and frantic busyness, this frenetic pace to which we are addicted. They're saying social alienation is an inevitable result. Remember Ben's sermon last week, put down your phones and look at me? Their decades of research, the report goes on to say, supports the idea that a lack of relationships can cause multiple problems with physical, emotional, and spiritual health. They're just confirming what's already been learned from the social sciences. And then it says this, the research is clear and devastating, I'm still quoting, relationships give life and isolation is fatal. 